Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. It's holiday season, so this week we have a previously aired conversation with artist Deborah Roberts. Roberts recently won a 2018 Anonymous Was a Woman grant. The program provides an unrestricted grant that, quote, enables women artists over 40 years of age and at a significant juncture in their lives or careers to continue to grow and pursue their work. Roberts came onto the program in February of 2018 on the occasion of the Spelman College Museum of Art exhibition, Deborah Roberts, The Evolution of Mimi. The show featured work Roberts has made in the last half decade or so, work that uses collage and girlhood to examine issues of race, gender, and America's present condition. The show is curated by Andrea Barnwell. Deborah Roberts was recently included in the group exhibition Fictions at the Studio Museum in Harlem, and her work is in the collections of the Studio Museum, the Blanton at the University of Texas, and the Block Museum of Art at Northwestern University. Deborah Roberts, after the break. The critically acclaimed exhibition Bruce Nauman, Disappearing Acts, is now on view at both the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan and MoMA PS1 in Queens. Experience Nauman's command of a tremendous range of mediums, from drawing, photography, and sculpture, to performance, neon, film, and large-scale installations, in a major retrospective of his 50-year career. The New York Times calls it, quote, a transfixing trip. Get more info and tickets at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. Come to the Getty Center for a respite from the holiday madness. Three new exhibitions open this month, Monumentality, Spectacular Mysteries, and Artful Words, while major exhibitions Sally Mann and the Renaissance Nude continue, along with a Queen's Treasure from Versailles, The Art of Three Faiths, and other focused shows. Learn more about what to see and do at the Getty this December at getty.edu slash 360. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. This fall, the Pulitzer presents Ruth Asawa, Life's Work, a career-spanning exhibition focused on Ruth Asawa's evolving artistic practice and ceaseless experimentation with wire. Bringing together more than 60 sculptures, including looped wire, tied wire, electroplated, and cast works, as well as several drawings and collages dating back to her formative years at Black Mountain College, this exhibition sheds light on Asawa's highly distinctive vision, which she achieved with a stunning deftness of hand and economy of means. Ruth Asawa Life's Work is on view through February 16th, 2019. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. And we're back. Deborah Roberts, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. Your work often addresses the art historical past and the political and cultural present through collages, often collages, that present young girls. Virtually all of your work features young girls. Why young girls? Is there a historical source or point of reference? And I can think of a few that I'm sure we'll be talking about. Or is it more an art historical point of reference or more just kind of a personal point of reference? I think it's a little bit of all those things. One of the things that I always, you know, I go back to is that I noticed when I wanted to be an artist and when I thought about how I looked. And most of the times those happened for me when I was between eight and 10 years old. And I think it's a personal look back. It's also a historical look back. I think that, you know, the way black families are set up, the head of the household sometimes is a woman. So how 
can she sometimes carry those loads? I mean, is it something instinctively that she does or is it something that she has to do? And is that put in us or started in us very early that maybe, you know, you're going to have to take care of yourself? So I think all those things are above works in the work. But between 8 and 10, that's when it all begins, really, as a young girl to become a teenager and then a, a woman. So if one of the ways, or maybe the first way the girls get into the work is through autobiography, through 8 to 10-year-old you, do you remember when you began to put together 8 or 10-year-old you with 8 or 10-year-old girls in popular culture, history, art history? Yeah, you know, like when I first started doing the collages, I used my eight-year-old face. Your own eight-year-old face, like images of your yeah, my face? own, yeah, images of my old eight-year-old faces, and it was really easy for me to deconstruct that face uh, when I was thinking about what I wanted the work to look like. How was I thinking about colorism or beauty or uh, just just features and things like that? It was easy because I did not recognize that little girl anymore. I mean, I'm a grown woman. So tearing apart that face was uh, exercise and and moving the work forward. I think when I was eight years old, I knew that I wanted to do things differently with my hair, my clothes. And my mom was very strict and I wasn't able to do those things. And I felt, you know, I still remember feeling like, I did not want to be like my sisters. I want to be somewhat different. And I think that's why I chose between 8 and 10 years old, because that's when I was trying to insert my independence. And my mother was saying, no, no, no. I, I don't mean to make this next question sound, you know, like it comes out of cultural response to The Simpsons or something. But do you, as you, as you kind of think about your practice now and look forward do you expect your girls, so to speak, to stay the age that they're at? Or do you think that they may age as your work advances in the coming decades? The girls are definitely going to age. And I'm going to also add little boys. I just finished up a project with New York Magazine in which I had to do some older girls for a special feature. And I, I saw this work, me doing this work five years from now, and putting together the faces, well, it was a lot harder than doing the little girls that I use now because I didn't really have the time to do the research behind it and really push the message that I wanted to get through. I think issues at eight years old and issues at 22 year old are to totally different. So I found myself kind of still using some of those, those imagery and issues that a little girl may face instead of a woman. So I, I, I definitely see these, these things growing older, more detailed, more complex as, as I age this child. So that is something I'm definitely looking forward to. As I guessed or, or, or kind of critically guessed where the idea of girls came from in your work, he says clunkily, I thought of two likely or possible uh, historical references. And I'm going to ask about one and then the other, and, and I'm hoping you can tell me if either of them was or is important to you. One of them is Ruby Bridges. Ruby Bridges was the six-year-old girl who was kind of spectacularly dressed in this marvelous plaid dress, and there are lots of pattern dresses, including plaid dresses in your work. 
Ruby Bridges integrated an all-white elementary school in New Orleans in, in, in 1960. The pictures are really famous. Was she or the photographic evidence of her experience important? Not really. Although I love Norman Rockwell and he did the piece on her, the, the world that we live in or something to that effect. She wasn't a part of my reckoning when I decided to do this little girl, although she was very important and is important today. I love the, the strength of that little girl. I mean, she was alone and she had to stand up to pretty much the whole world during this, you know, time period. But that didn't fade into the work that I'm doing, although I think that's very important and it's something I should be adding to my work. The textures and the patterns that I use in my pieces, I'm talking to this notion that the things that we thought we had solved are still around and it's a pattern that just keeps repeating itself over and over and over again. So in my work, that's why the patterns are so important to, to check. I mean, if I started putting circles or targets, then the work would be marginalized and say, oh, okay, victim. She wants to be a victim and that's not it. It's just that there's a unique structural pattern that is consistently happening. And I put a lot of that into work. One, one of the things that comes across really strongly in your work, in part because of the white backgrounds on which you often place your figures, we'll talk about that later, is that you give these little girls a tremendous amount of, of agency and, and, and power. And it struck me that another possible takeoff point for you or reason to give girls power in the way you do might be the Birmingham Children's Campaign of 1963, when... when the children led the way when some adults weren't quite weren't quite ready to. And I wonder if that's an historical example that, that matters to you in, in, when it comes to the work. I think that is very important. When those students left classes and went out in March, that was really quite extraordinary. And it did show the power of youth. It showed the power of community. And I think that's also, that's the history part of my work. When I talk about the work. I always tell people I always take a four-pronged approach to it where I talk about Black history, American history, pop culture, and art history. And I add all those together to come up with the imagery that I come up with. I think that those kids marching out of school demanding equal rights was so very important. And I think that hopefully some of that is in the work that I'm creating, that Sometimes, you know, you're going to have to step out on your own. If you want to see the changes in the world, you know, you're going to have to make them. The show is titled The Evolution of Mimi. Who is Mimi? Well, so the work that I did, the body of work that I did when I was in grad school at Syracuse was The Miseducation of Mimi, where I took part of Lauren Hill's album title, and then I took part of Mariah Carey's, and I mixed them together. Because at one point, Lauren Hill was so powerful. She knew who she was. She knew exactly what she wanted to do. And she was unapologetic for it. And Mariah Carey, although she was very extremely popular, she had a, she had, at that time, she had a problem with her own identity as a Black woman. And I, and I wanted to show in my work that those two things exist in the black community, in the black womanhood, that not everyone's like a real strong woman. Sometimes you have doubts about who you are. I mean, we don't come out just automatically knowing, you know, 
I'm going to be tough. I'm going to fight the world. So I wanted to show both sides of that type of personality, those problems that exist in, in, in a black culture. So when I merged the two names, it was mainly to, to, to make sure that I wanted to kind of educate people. And I love the idea of Mimi because I, I just thought it was really cute, you know. So anyway, so that, that's where the title come come from. And it was the miseducation of Lauren Hill. And then it must have been the emancipation of Mimi, which, you know, I thought merged them together. You mentioned Syracuse. I have a, I have a guess as to why you went to Syracuse. Why did you pick Syracuse? <laughs> well, I was accepted to other schools, but Syracuse came, I guess I got a full ride from Syracuse. I didn't know much about it, but I felt like I really wanted to concentrate on my work. And when I visited the campus, it was so remote that I felt like I could really, really, you know, get work done. I didn't know how remote it was going to be. I didn't know about the snow. The snow was something else. Snow, I didn't know snow came, you know, like came towards your face, came towards your back, came on top of your head. It came inside your ear. I mean, it's just snows Every way snow can fall, it falls in Syracuse, and it falls often and often. So I had a lot of time to really work. And that was really good for me because it helped to work mature and really, really work through it. You mentioned Syracuse. I don't know what year you, you, you finished at Syracuse, but I did wonder if Carrie Mae Weems was part of why you went there or how you found. Well, yeah, I, 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 I got my MFA in 2014. Carrie Mae Weems was not teaching at the school at that time, but she was definitely one of the little nuggets they put in, in, my, in under my you know hat they kept saying oh you have access to her and she lives in the city and you know and we have an amazing African African American studies department and things like that which made it very important because I love Carrie Mae Weems's work. I just oh my God. And so I said, you know, okay, I think I could do it. And the first year I couldn't reach her. I couldn't I mean I I tried and tried and I was like, oh my God, I'm stuck at the school with all this snow and I can't even get to Carrie Mae Williams. And then the next year I was able to finally reach out to her and, and, and have some opportunity to talk with her and visit with her about my work. So let's let's talk about the figures th- th- themselves, the work, the objects themselves. One of the things that is most striking about how you build your figures is that they have the faces of children as we've talked a little bit about, but the body posture and the neck-down presentation, if you will, of grown-up women. Was that something you had to work toward, an idea you had to develop and reach? Or was it from the very beginning that these were little girls' heads on bodies that were older? Well, I, I did want to do that. I didn't. I, actually, those things like that happened in the studio. I wasn't planning actually on you know making you know it, the body parts bigger or making them some of male or older women. It quite happened by accident. One of them because I was cutting out a hand and the book fell on top of some work and it just looked right. So I said, well, let me cut this down and see how it looks. And then I said, okay, this is this is this is power. And you know, I love the work of Amir Bearden. 
And he does, he has big figures, big hands into works, and then smaller, you know, feet or eyes. And so I thought that stuff really worked in my work. So I would love to say that I did it on purpose and I'm a genius. But, no, it happened by accident. I mean, a lot of things happened. And only in the last year or so, Kyla, I've been able to work without fear. And and that's due to some, you know, really good funding I had. Because before I was, like, trying to create works that either they were sellable or I didn't push the boundaries of the work. And, And I didn't do that even in grad school. Uh, I didn't do that until I actually got out of grad school and was working part-time at a shoe store, which was horrible, and coming home and working on my practice. And I just kept saying, you know, you, you know, you have to do something that pushes the message, but then you don't, you're so afraid to, you know, go beyond what people are used to seeing from you. So the, the big hands, the, the Muhammad Ali's fist and, and things like that, the power that I needed to, to show in the work, I wasn't putting there. I wasn't using it. And I can't tell you why I wasn't doing it. But it's very important to right now to do this type of work. Then, hey, I'm, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. Speaking of, of the hands, in most of your figures, you spotlight or call a viewer's attention to kind of three particular things. The figure's hair is always um, a point of focus. Her hands are always a point of focus, sometimes as a fist, sometimes not. And often her feet, too, which I should note aren't always feet. Sometimes the feet are actually hands. So I think I understand why you emphasize hair, but why hands and feet so much? Well, the the feet, when I have the feet coming from out of the body, and it's really odd or there are legs and feet, they act as legs and feet. I always talk, that's when I'm talking more about how there are more men in our bodies telling us how to treat our bodies, how to react to certain things that happen to our bodies and things like that. So I think it's more of a power structure when I have the hands coming out of the body. I also try to speak to this notion that black bodies have always been a part of commodity, of consumerism. It's, it's always been something that has fed, fed this country. So I have the hands coming out in that way. When I have the arms and the body, like in particular this last, this next piece I'm working on, and I have the three girls and their arms are super, you know, powerful, like muscular almost. And it's just talking about is a certain type of strength that I must have, you know, in order to carry the load I have to carry. And I have to develop these muscles, and I'm and I'm and that's in quotation, very early. I have to know certain things very early, and so that's important because I think that that harkens back to the history of blackness in America. So those arms are really important. Also, my arms, especially when they're women's arms, is there of comfort and past and present. You know that we need these hands to hold on to each other that's from the past and into the future. So that's really important is, you know, having really strong hands to comfort these little girls within their bodies. Well, as a tennis fan, I hope you find some Serena arms to use. 
Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I just uh, <laughs> actually, <laughs> I, I read when her when her little baby was born, and she talked about how she the little girl had very I mean Olympia. I, I'm a fan. So she had little strong arms, and she said, you know, she said, I can't believe it. My baby has my arms, and she may go through a lot of stuff that I went through, body shaming. And, you know, and she said, you know, she just thanked her mother for just being there. And I think that's important, too. We're shaped differently. I mean, I don't know what that is. It's just the part of the body and how the black body is produced. And I think that's something to be celebrated. You know, it's a difference. Not special. It's just different. You mentioned Bearden, Romare Bearden. I'm a big Bearden fan, too. Do you remember where and how and when you first found Bearden? When I first saw his collages, I think they were in an art book at either at Syracuse or I just found them here in Austin at the bookstore when I was looking for uh, different types of things to do. My, my work wasn't always collage, so I just loved the, the use of, I, I used to do a lot of jazz pieces, so he did a lot of jazz collages, and I used to use, do a lot of jazz paintings. I think very early on I saw his work not so much as a collage, but as color, you know, blues and, and, and trumpets, yellow trumpets, you know, juxtaposition against a dark, dark blue background with stars in it and someone playing music, a big yellow guitars and things like that. And I think I added that to some of, some of the early jazz pieces I worked on. Because, you know, it, one of the things about the work that's really interesting to me is it's easy to find the Bearden influence in the work, collage and the construction of faces that we talked about earlier. But it's also at least as easy to see where you have pointedly departed from Bearden. Bearden would never put a human being on a white blank backdrop. His pieces are just the most sublime cacophony of, of colors and shapes and depth. And, 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 and you use a lot of white backdrops. And then also in Bearden, and this is a good thing, I don't mean this as a, as a negative criticism, in, in, in Bearden, you know, there are 27 colors all pushing and pulling and competing for attention. And in your work, you use a lot of black and white and often that black and white is is punched up with one or with one and often no more than two kind of dominant colors. Did you think about those things as departing from Bearden, or did they develop in your work independent of of thinking of him? I think they developed independent of thinking of him. You're right about you're going to see a lot of Bearden influence in my work. I mean, I struggled just yesterday couple of days ago, I'm creating a, a new work. And when I was cutting out this collage, just a big arm and not like I go in tighter, I saw a blue line, a blue line all the way around it. And I said, oh my God, if I leave it like this, it, it looks, first of all, it was, it, it looked amazing, but it was instantly bearded. And it was like, so bearded, I can't use it. And I was like, oh, uh, it was so awful. It's still on my board right now, my, on the collage I'm working on. And I can't not cut it out yet because, but it's so bearded. But for me, when I use the white, stark white backgrounds, I was thinking about how, I'm not Hana Hawk in the way that, you know, because she did a lot of color backgrounds, but I didn't want your eye to go any place but on the being. And I, I I thought by with the collage and trying to create a background too, I mean it was 
I thought it would probably may become very busy. And that wasn't what I wanted. I wanted you to focus in on the child, focus in on the human that's in the picture, to to meet his that girl's eyes and have her eyes meet you. And I just said, okay, when I first did the first big one, I was going to almost do some paper behind it. And I said, no, let's do another one. And it just works really well because it's you and the work and nothing else. And and that's my point that I always try to say. I, I, I want you to see the human in that person and not as a partial person, even though it's a collage and a, a bunch of mixed faces. See that person as a whole person. See that person as a human. And if you can see her as a human, then you can maybe see yourself in her. And so that was really important in the work that, I, that I'm creating. So, yeah, I mean, I would love to do more things like Robert Bearden, but I don't want to be his clone, uh, even though I don't mind being his clone. I just still need to you know, stay true to what I want the work to talk about. No, I think it's, I think, I, think, I mean, for me, where the work comes alive is in where it departs, you know, that it, it just stands out in, in a way, you know, I think, Lots of other critics have made the Barclay Hendricks reference where, where Hendricks is forever putting figures on white backgrounds. I mean, you know, your work, you know, except for in that very specific way, your work has nothing to do with Barclay Hendricks. But I, you know, as an art history nerd, I love that kind of taking things from different generations of, of art history. Speaking of, of art history, I, I do want to talk about some specific works and we'll have images of these, I think, on manpodcast.com. You have a work in the Spellman Show called Untitled After Matisse. There are a number of reasons I can think of Matisse potentially being interesting to you, other than that he's kind of a good artist. One of them being his relationship with the French colonial experience. And also, you know, he made a very famous, maybe the most famous child portrait of the early 20th century, including a, a picture of his daughter Marguerite when she was about 10 or, 10 or 11. How did you specifically engage Matisse in that work, and why him? I I totally love him. I think a lot of artists, I mean, I'm talking in general terms, find a lot of excuses not to do work. Uh, I don't have a proper paper. I don't have a bigger studio. My studio's not together. Matisse lost access to his his legs, and he wrote, he still when he couldn't paint anymore, his hands he cut made collages. He found work way to do his work. That is the number one thing that I respect about him. I just love that. And so that picture in particular, people like that picture. I happen not to like that work. And I can tell you what, because I felt like at the end of doing uh, a series of work for Volta, I was done. But that was the last one. And I felt like I kind of like kept pushing at it and I need to know when to stop. I had actually had a different type of dress on on that little girl, and I just I just kept messing it up. And I remember at that time I was talking on my blog about Matisse, and I I just started tearing up the collage element of the dress and started just applying it on, just applying it on like like I think he would have, you know. And then just just saw him in the wheelchair with his big scissors, and he's just cutting, and I just made really big strokes and cuts and things like that, and I thought that really worked on that piece. I totally love him because whenever I start to, you know, feel sorry for myself, don't feel like I have 
you know, the best environment. I don't have enough wall space to let the the work talk to each other, to let it live together. Once they're done, they're put in a, a little box, you know, that I created. And I just keep saying, you know, I wish I had walls, but, you know, I've got all sorts of excuses. But I think about him, and maybe I'm not in the perfect space, but I'm been, I'm allowed to do the work that I've always wanted to do. So, you know, I give it up to Matisse, man. It's like, I, I'm glad people really love that work. I think he's amazing. We've talked a lot about the faces in your work and who, who, who they are are and and how you make them you know which makes it stand out all the more that there are a couple of pieces in which the faces are obscured so i wanted to ask about those one of those is one of them's in the spellman show it's from 2012 it's called witness tell me about the face in that work and why it's obscured that's me that's that's one of my pictures of my face it's one of the early ones i don't know i guess it's a personal note on this one especially those early ones is that, you know, I'm one of eight kids, and I was so different, only in the terms that I loved art so much. And I always felt like I really kind of, I was kind of mistakenly put in that family, and that my real family, Michelangelo and Vincent Van Gogh and all these people are going to come and get me. And so I remember just being just different. And so when I was first working through those those works, I used the sandpaper a lot. And and then I felt like I was always silent in my household. So I, I remember trying to really make the lips where they were sewn together. And yeah, I guess that's a really personal picture. I mean, uh, now that I'm thinking about it, I used I used to sander a lot early on in the work. Uh, not anymore. So Sometimes if you're not a witness, you know, you can't tell the story. And I didn't, I don't like people asking me a lot of questions. <laughs> you know, we're doing an interview right now, but it's totally different. And so I just always felt different. And sometimes I wanted to be erased. So I erased myself. And Tyler, that, yeah, that goes back to, remember I told you, I used my face to deconstruct these images until I was able to reconstruct them, which is what I'm doing now. So I had to just tear them apart, and this was one of the ones I did. I am guessing that the reason for a certain facelessness in 2016's Royal Blood, which in, in which the figure um, has has a crown on uh, on a face that's been obscured, comes from a totally different place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, that one was mainly talking about there's no royal blood here. You know, just talking about that we have to, sometimes we cause have kings and queens, and we don't know that to be true, but in order to to move forward and creating an identity for oneself, sometimes you have to say, I'm, I'm royalty. <laughs> and so I, I'm obsessed with Queen Elizabeth, I, I must admit. And so I, I just like the power of the sovereignty and that somehow I feel, you know, we don't have that you know, in this country, because we don't really know, we know we are Americans, but we don't know the the, the history, history. And so, so when I say there's no raw blood, it's speaking to this notion that we can't really trace ourselves back, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. 
In the last year or two, you've made a number of works that feature your girls holding boxing gloves. One is titled Rope-A-Dope to make kind of the, the, the reference to the sport and, and even maybe to a particular fighter inescapable. And then there are other works of, of your girls putting up their dukes, putting up their fists, or, or in, a, in a kind of body posture suggesting combativeness. I'm thinking of works like Red Dots and Hot Water. How much are those about the current political moment? The Red Gloves, the first one I did was Tug of War. And then, you know, later, the, it, it has a lot to do with the political world we now live in. Just like millions of Americans, I thought we were further along than we were. And I remember waking up on November, oh God, I can't even say it. And, and we had a new president and he was that that person. And 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 then all the things that he said that, I mean, it, it's off, I don't even wanna talk about it. But it's, the thing is about the great glove is it's a it's a opportunity for, for, for these girls to fight to keep the very things we have fought for. You know, like I'm ready if I have to go to battle with you, if I have to strap on these gloves and fight you for this, for my right to be here or to be recognized as an American, as a human, then I'm ready. And so rope-a-dope is, I think Mama Ali talked about, you know, sometimes people give you the okey-doke or the rope-a-dope. They tell you that things are okay, but then that you know, behind your back, they're doing other things that are structurally against you. So I always say don't fall for the rope of dope. So uh, when I did uh, Red Dots and Hot Water, it was going backwards to this notion of the ancient mama with the, with the hair, but it's you a know, very colorful skirt and taking back that whole image of what Auntie Mama really was about because it was a very strong, powerful woman who was able to take care of two households and do it very well and make sure everybody was happy. And so like so when her fist are cocked, it's like I can take on anything and everything. But the work that I'm doing now that I'm moving away from that and I think that we cannot be the mule, you know, to carry different things. So, you know, when you talk about politics, you know, what happened in Alabama, you know, black women came out 98% and, you know, really, you know, pushed that vote over. And we can't just always carry that load. So I'm, move, I'm shifting away from that a little bit in the work. With those more pugilistic works, I can't help but thinking of, of Betty Saar, in which she emphasizes the fight in and uh, the fight within black women and a willingness to bring the fight to a white supremacist society and and while there are no specific kind of forgive the phrase cut and pasted art historical references to sar the spirit of those works particularly red dots and hot water remind remind me of her right in particular yeah i mean we always have to be on the fence on defensive. And I, 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 I want that softer part, the vulnerability part, to come through more in the work. When I try and collage stuff like that, it gets, it gets washed away in the, the first, I mean, here's a step-by-step. I do, the first thing I do is start constructing the faces. And once I get the face down, then I work on the body and what I want to talk about within the work. And and then I build a I build a collage, and sometimes I've been wanting to do more little girls more vulnerable, 
but it ha- it just doesn't come out. I mean, because we can't be vulnerable. Not really, not right now. I think there's, <laughs> there's some space for that to happen, but not right now. Not right now. We have to stay on top of it, stay woke, as people say, and be ready, be ready to stand up and, and stand in the cracks of society and say, hey, and the margins and come out of the margins, actually, and say, you know, I'm here and I'm going to help us get better. In 2015, you made a series of works uh, with the same title, Protest, all in capital letters with an exclamation point. What motivated those? That body of work I was talking about, the protest was about portraiture. And it was mainly to black people because I thought that colorism and this notion of good hair and this notion of big lips and things that we tend to criticize each other for was very, very in the national spotlight. Then the Rachel Delazar issue happened with costuming blackness. That was also came about. And I remember working on those works and saying that black blackness wasn't a costume. But portraiture, taking these types of works, saying that a lot of the things that we fight about each other really is not important, that it stems from a, a hard history in American history, and it has nothing to do with us now. So those works, I did 10 of those works, and I put a great background on each one, and all of them challenged the notion of being proud of who you are. And so I did, um, that work to me looked more like Bearden than any of the works I've done in the past, because it was just so important to kind of really break up the face cut and do multiple images on top of multiple images, and and then do a lot of the little girls with their they tongue sticking out with the American flag and that, to have a skin that has been whitewashed with great protest in it so that you could see the black skin underneath it, that we did not have to have this double consciousness of walking in the community and to the society and trying to look anything other than a, a black American. So, yeah, that work was very important. And hopefully I can revisit that one day on a larger scale. One kind of last question about source material or presumed source material. A lot of your titles include literary references. So there's a Maya Angelou reference within the work titled Still We Rise. There's a a work titled We Heard the Thunder, which I presume is a reference to the John Oliver Killens novel about the treatment of black soldiers in World War II, segregated soldiers in World War II. When you use a literary reference in the title, are you giving us a clue as to themes, subjects, ideas you're referencing in the work? Or are you just playing with words and phrases because they're really cool? Well, I'm giving you a reference. Hopefully people, you know, (laughs) catch on to it. Because like I said, you know, art history, American history, Black culture and uh, pop culture, all those things are very important. They, they, they interact our lives every day. So right now, I'm like, I'm so, I think that we're living in the days of James Baldwin when he talked about being a Negro and, and, and the 1960s and the things that are happening today, are, are the, it's the same. We're, we're living in the present 
also in the past at the same time. And so I use those references to kind of to remind us that we've already fought this fight. We need to move forward, move as a society, move forward. And the works that I'm currently working on talk to Rosa Parks. I'm working with works that deal with her booking number and, and, the, and the silence of people who we think are there to protect us, to pass laws, to move us forward, are very silent in some of the things that are happening to people of color right now. So we can't have that. And if I want the work to be an artifact of this time, then I have to show those things. Those things are happening right now. And I think this, especially this Rosa Park stuff, is, is really, really, really important. We talked a little bit earlier about work that references or has within it Mariah Carey and Lauren Hill. So I thought I would make my last question about a 2016 work called Beehive. I, I, I have a hunch I know what we're referencing with that title, but tell me where that work comes from and how it ends up looking like it looks like. We'll have images on the on the website. <laughs> <laughs> well, Beehive, you know, I, I, I love the lady who we know as Beehive. I wanted to say that, you know, there used to be a thing that, that black woman, I mean, Sunrise, Sunrise, the, the god who cried tears, the tears turned into bees, and the bees turned into black women. And that is, that's, I don't know if that's true or not. I think it's a fable. But when I did beehive, I, want, I did a, a lot of little gold bowls on top of the head, and it was just a, a beautiful hive in which bees came and made honey and turned into black women. So I tried to do that in a couple of works. I don't think a lot of it made it to the uh, the show, but it is referencing bees, I mean, the tears of sunrise turning into black women, you know, from bees into black women. And they were strong. That's how black women were made. I don't, I know that's not true, but I thought it was really neat. <laughs> and, and in particular, that that's the one I also want to use my hand more. I think in all the works that are there, that is the one that's most drawn. I mean, more, you know, charcoal pencil and uh, graphite and just really showing, you know, this is the type of work I used to do. How can I bring that type of narrative work into contemporary practice? So it was an exercise, and I just, I totally love that work. Beyonce got some of my work. She has some couple of pieces. Beyonce owns a couple of yours? Yeah, three, actually, three. Did you name Beehive before or after that happened? <laughs> after that, I mean, before that. I mean, I had no idea. I mean, I, I was telling Andrea, Dr. Bornwell. The director of the Spellman Museum. Yeah, the director of Spellman is that when I was in this little room doing this work, I had no idea that I would contact, be in contact with anyone like that or that my work would ever be in the museums. It was just me working and my own ideas of what I thought was important. And so, no, I, I had no idea. I didn't think about her. I was, you know, I had Picasso in my work and Frank Stella's work and Motherwell and, and all those types of things, you know, critiquing, critiquing the, the notion that there were Black artists at that time period creating beautiful works that never had the opportunity to show those works. And so, you know, it was just a, a labor of love. And then who knows, you know, we go back, we go forward 10 months, and I'm having a solo show at Spelman Museum. 
and have my work collected by the Studio Museum of Harlem. It's just unbelievable. Not too bad. Deborah Roberts, thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.